1: I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on topics dealing with the H-1B cap season uh, for fiscal year 2019. I can't believe they are already talking about fiscal year 2019. Um, I'm pleased to introduce two of my esteemed colleagues to each of you. I have to both senior attorneys at our firm, Chris Drynan and Kenya Sanders. Uh, I don't even think I need to go into the whole background about an H-1B and what it means and what a cap means and that there's a 65,000 quota and 20,000 for the master's degree quota, etc. Because I feel like I'm talking to all of you as company owners, business owners, or HR people that completely understand the uh, you know gist of those issues. So with that, let me get to the the crux, which is when should an employer file an H-1B petition? How does the timing work, Chris? Well, cap
0: numbers are, are tied to the U.S. government's fiscal year, which is not the same as the calendar year. Um, the next fiscal year for the U.S. government, which we, we refer to as fiscal year 2019, uh, starts on October 1st, 2018. And therefore, the earliest that an H-1B can start um, the earliest that you can request as a start date on a petition is October 1st, 2018. And cases can be filed six months in advance of the requested start date, but not any earlier than that. Um, that means that even if a petition is approved prior to October 1st, a cap an H-1B cap case will not have a validity date, a start date, before October 1st, 2018.
1: Okay, and just so to be very clear, because we use the word fiscal year 2019, remember since, as Chris just pointed out, the USCIS fiscal year starts on October 1st, 2018 and gets over on September 30th of the following year, it's actually called fiscal year 2019. I remember when I first started, it was like it didn't make sense. So I thought it's important to share that with you all. Okay. So next, let's go to who? Whether is it the employer? Is it the employee? What type of situations
2: would a, an employee be subject to the cap? Kenya? Okay. Okay. Um Now, the employee is the one who will be subject to the cap. Now, they are also, they are the beneficiary of the H-1B petition. So the beneficiary who's never been on H-1B status ever will be generally subject to the cap. Um, The person who was counted against the cap in the past, but was outside the U.S. for at least one year can choose to either be counted against the cap or if they had time left, that means that if they did not use up the entire six years previously, they can choose to utilize whatever time they have left of that six years and and choose not to be counted against the cap. Now, those who were cap-exempt in previous years, who held H-1B, but were working for cap-exempt organizations um, or they were not subject to the cap, just like the J-1 um, Conrad waivers, if they wanted to now become subject to the cap, they will also be subject to the cap. If they are no longer working for a cap-exempt organizations and wanted to work for a cap subject, then they will become subject to the cap as well.
1: Was there an exception for J1 physicians who yes. were one with Physician. the Conrad uh, waiver? Then they are not; they are never subject. Even if they go back to a private employer, or are they still subject?
2: No, they, they go ahead, Chris.
1: Go
0: ahead. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. If they've received a, a Conrad 30 or another IGA, we call them interested government agency waivers, they are they are continue to be exempt from the quota.
1: That's correct. They're yes. cap exempt forever. So even if they go back to a private employer, they're still okay um and of course like uh, kenya was sort of starting to say there's other employers because who might be cap exempt because of the stat- language which says employment at and by a university and their nonprofit affiliates as well as nonprofit and government research organizations so again it's that itself is a huge analysis and research that needs to be ensured to see if somehow the beneficiary or employee that's working for you, even if you are a cap-subject employer and not working with the university as majority of the people on the conference call today, make sure that if the person is working at a particular cap-exempt employer uh, employer location, it might be exempt. Okay, so next we have the issue, of course, of a specialty occupation, which is, of course, a big, hot issue that we're going to talk about in a little bit as well. Um You know, generally, we've been seeing an H-1B. You know, to qualify as an H-1B, the person must be in a specialty occupation, and the definition of specialty occupation, obviously, is that the job requires a bachelor's or higher education degree or the equivalent in the specific fields, and the foreign nationals, uh, the you know, must possess the required education or equivalent work experience at the time of filing the petition, which again has now started to get its own RFEs, as I said, we're going to talk about in a minute. However, the fact that the beneficiary just has a bachelor's degree does not automatically mean that the position is a specialty occupation um, because the job must actually require that as the minimum to enter the occupation. So if also the USCIS has taken the position as is allowed under the regulations that if the posi- that, that if the position requires a bachelor's degree in any field then it's not a specialty occupation because the position must require a degree in the specific field generally directly related to the job duties to be performed in the position
0: Chris one of the, the one of the workarounds that's been available for years, as long as I've been practicing, Sheila, for people who don't have a bachelor's degree um, in a a relevant field or perhaps sometimes don't even have an actual bachelor's degree, is to utilize their work experience. Um, Now the regulations permit you to basically substitute work experience for education. And the way you have to do this is to get a college professor who has the authorization from their their school to grant college credit for experience. essentially to write an opinion letter saying that your years of experience, uh, the employee's years of experience, are equivalent to to a bachelor's degree level of education. Uh, this is something we've used for for a long time, and it's traditionally it's worked. Um, we've gotten a lot of pushback from USCIS recently on these experience evaluations. In
1: fact, aren't they demanding two experience letters and now saying that the professor may be qualified to evaluate only educational credentials, but not education and work experience combined. Almost any flimsy, weak reason that they can possibly conceive and think of under the Trump administration Mm -hmm. to harass employers and employees that are creating jobs and paying taxes.
0: And we've actually seen these really crazy RFEs that basically reject these experience evaluations. um, And the language essentially says because the college professor did not sit with the applicant for the day and see what work they're actually doing which is a, a I want to bizarre know interpretation, the
1: does it. it's, I mean, which it's I've
0: never heard of anyone doing. It's a bizarre interpretation. Um, another thing to, to keep in mind it here. It would
1: really help if a lot of companies and employers would actually be willing, in outrageous cases, which seems to be becoming the norm, to consider uh, maybe challenging the government, suing them, giving them a hard time, And I know for a fact that we at the Murthy Law Firm, because we believe in justice and fighting for rights, and when we believe injustice is being done, that we will actually work with you as employers if there's a good, strong case to discount our fees by a huge margin just because we want to fight uh, and get a result so that you can become the example so that the government stops misbehaving and taking advantage of people like you all. Mm -hmm.
0: Another thing to remember here, sometimes you'll have a, an employee who doesn't yet have their physical diploma. They've completed all the requirements for the degree, they just haven't, haven't received the actual physical degree. Uh, that's fine, but when you file your H-1B, you need to obtain a letter from the college registrar or from the dean uh, essentially verifying that the person has completed all the requirements and that you're merely awaiting the physical diploma.
1: Okay. Thank you. Uh, I know that everything and any reason is a good reason to give people a hard time, as we said. So, again, paper your pa- make your package as strong and tight as possible. So, Kenya, from the employer's perspective, when should the H-1B employer basically
2: start preparing for the case, and what can they do to plan ahead? Okay, it's very important to plan ahead because it's not possible to predict when the cap numbers will be depleted. As many of you know, the cap numbers for fiscal year 2018 ran out within the first five business days of April 2017. When USCIS receives more petitions than the available visas, it employs a random selection process known as the lottery to select petitions to fill the available number of visas. Except that some people believe
1: it may not be so random after all because some companies that paid the extra $2,000 seem to miraculously get picked in a slightly higher percentage. And I wonder if we could sue them even on the way they're picking the numbers. Everything, we should sue the government for everything. (laughs) They really make my blood boil. I can't even imagine if I was in your place and if my business and my life and my livelihood and feeding my children depended on this. How furious, I'm so mad at the government right now.
2: Because as you know, I mean, USC has first picks the, the 20,000 visas that are alloc- allocated to those who have obtained master's degrees from a non-profit or public U.S. university. The balance of the master's degree petitions are then mixed with the regular cap petitions and USCIS then picks 65,000 from this pool of petitions. Now, generally, you know, it's not the total 65,000. It actually works out to about 58,500 because they assign some of those to Singapore and Chile from some special. Yeah, visas.
1: yeah, yeah. But again, with the government <laughs> we know this past year, especially a year ago, last year, April 2017, how they conveniently because they knew they were going to deny majority of the cases, the cap cases. They took a lot more in so that they could encash the checks. If you and I did that, we would be in jail for theft, fraud, <laughs> or uh, theft or fraud. And yet the government is conveniently acti- cashing all these checks with the intention, with the intention or idea of only approving maybe one in four cases or one in five cases and putting the, uh, the rest of the money into their pocket. There should be a jail prison for them, not just jail. <laughs> anyway,
0: uh, Chris. And it's also important to remember, both employers and employees, uh, that there are a number of steps involved in, in filing an H-1B petition. Um, most importantly, an H-1B has to be filed with a Department of Labor Labor Condition Application. Everyone calls it an LCA. Um, that has to be filed and approved by the Department of Labor before you can submit the H-1B. Um, and getting the LCA back, even though it's submitted electronically, it can take up to seven business days. Um and also, historically, around cap season, because of the volume of LCAs being filed, um, there's a long history of having delays and technical glitches with the Department of Labor's computer system, uh, which can delay the, the receipt of the LCA. Um, so the later you start a case, the more likely you could run into a situation where you don't get the certified LCA back in time to file your, file your H-1B during the first five days of April.
2: Okay. Kenya. And and preparing an H-1B petition is a very complex process, especially because of all the issues we have been discussing. USCIS has been subjecting these H-1Bs to substantially greater scrutiny. So this is particularly true in situations where the workers are assigned to third-party locations. To have the best chance for success, it is necessary to be aware of the documentary requirements and current policy and adjudication trends and begin the process as early as possible. The Murthy Law Firm, as you know, is one of the most experienced in providing cutting edge and proactive representation in H-1B cases. Our firm can assist H-1B employers and employees by providing guidance and we provide recommendation as to USCIS adjudicating trends and provide recommendations for appropriate strategies to increase the chance for success for each case. Well, that sounds wonderful, except
1: I know for a fact that most companies, employers, and their lawyers, especially in this past year, from in the year 2017, calendar year, fiscal year 2018, have really seen as we've all been talking about, more RFEs, more denials. And even you know, law firms that were getting a 99.9% approval rating uh, in prior years for decades have now been seeing the ridiculous nature of the RFEs. And so while I believe truly that the Murti Law Firm has amazing and probably the best experience with terms of volume and in terms of the work experience and having very, very bright lawyers, uh, all of us, every single person, every single company and lawf- lawyer in the in the United States or anywhere in the world doing U.S. immigration has certainly encountered our of, share of challenges in this past year. So in terms of changing the status, the question really is, can the beneficiary change the status within the United States? Uh, and what happens if the F-1 OPT is actually expiring before the October 1st start date, for the um, H-1 petition, which means that the person is technically no longer able to enjoy F-1 cap gap privileges. So as you know, the general rule is that the employee or the beneficiary can change status um, with an H-1 petition, which requests an October 1st start date only if the person's H-1 or prior non-immigrant status will continue to remain valid until the prior September 30th, so that way there's not even a single day of gap of the person's status. Uh, But the rules change if it's different. So I'll have Chris and then Kenya maybe explain some of that. Chris?
0: Well, since we're talking about CAP H-1Bs, the vast majority of these are people who are in F-1 status or in optional practical training. Um, And the situation's a little different here. Um, If the student's F-1 status or their optional practical training, ends prior to September 30th, 2018, uh, he or she may be eligible for for an automatic, it's called a cap-gap extension, until September 30th. Basically, if your status ends before the start date of the H-1B, which would, which would be October 1st, um, this rule sort of fills in the gap and allows you to stay here in, in valid status while you're waiting for your H-1B to take effect. Um, and you get the benefit of this CAP-GAP if four conditions are met. Um, the petition has to be filed before the expiration of the optional practical training or the end of the grace period. Um, now, one thing to remember here, if it's filed after your OPT has expired while you're only in the grace period, you are allowed to remain here until the H-1B goes into effect, but you're not allowed to work. If it's filed, If the H-1B petition is filed while your optional practical training is still in effect, you're allowed to continue working until September 30th. It extends your work authorization too. Two, the change of status has to be requested on the H-1B petition. If the H-1B is filed only requesting consular notification, in other words, when it's approved, you would have to go get a visa stamp, you don't get the CAP-GAP extension. Uh, Three, you have to request an October 1st start date on the H-1B. If you request anything different, you don't get CAP-GAP. And also, of course, the case, the H-1B petition, has to eventually be approved. Okay, the cap gap extension starts um, when the when you're when the employees or the students' current period of F1 status ends, regardless of whether they're in OPT at that time. And as I said, if the student is in OPT when they file, then the work authorization is extended till September 30th. If you're not in OPT, or if it's filed during the grace period. You can re- remain here, but you're not allowed to work until the H-1B is approved and goes into effect on October 1st.
1: Okay, what happens if the petition ends up becoming, being either rejected by the USCIS or ends up getting denied, or
2: after it's approved, revoked by the employer or USCIS? The cap gap will end when the petition is rejected, denied, or revoked. So if the petition is rejected, denied or revoked before October 1, the cap gap will end on the date that the petition is rejected, denied, or revoked. If the um, petition is denied, rejected, or revoked after October 1, the cap gap ends on the date uh, of the denial. However, the work authorization, as Chris said, will end on September 30th, even if the petition is still pending beyond September 30th. Correct. Unless the person had the F1 OPT still valid, right. presumably, then they could continue to work on that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly.
1: So, um, okay. And so as you've, you've seen, CVis has actually strongly recommended that students not travel outside of the United States while the cap gap extension is pending. Uh, because everybody says, "Oh, I really want to go." I, you know, anyway, I can't. War, whatever, whatever reasons. The USCIS will then will consider the change of status request to be deemed abandoned, as is required by law, when a person who has filed a change from one status to another another departs the United States while that application for the change of status is pending with the USCIS. Um, if the student then travels outside during the cap gap, it is recommended, as I said, that they wait to return pursuant to the H-1B to resume employment on or after October 1st. And so again, to sort of go over the issue, so if the beneficiary is not in F-1 status, second, the current status ends prior to October 1st, and if the beneficiary cannot maintain a non-immigrant status until September 30th, then the beneficiary will not be able to change status within the United States to H-1B, or actually, for that matter, any other non-immigrant status the person may apply for. But in this particular case, since we're talking about H-1Bs, the the, uh, uh, petition should actually request consular processing and the employee or the beneficiary should be ready to depart the United States and apply for an H-1B visa stamp when the petition is approved for consular processing. Um, as we mentioned ab- earlier, as I think Kenny or Chris both mentioned just a few minutes ago, the an H-1B petition that is approved for consular processing will not allow the beneficiary to work in the United States upon its approval because the I-94 card is not attached to it. It does not extend or change the status for that person. And this means that the person actually needs to travel, obtain the visa, and then re-enter back to the United States and obtain an I-94 card issued by the Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, at the airport, another port of entry, whether it's a land border or a seaport or whatever. Uh, so that's important to remember. And remember, issues regarding changes of status are, in fact, pretty complex and need to be discussed either by you as an employer or require the employee to consult with either your attorney or their own attorney, sometimes a different attorney. Just to ensure that there's no mess up. And often what we have also seen is where employers or the individual employee gets confused and doesn't file the H4 for the spouse uh, because they assume that the person automatically gets the status when their status is uh, approved, which is completely wrong, as we all know. And this could create major complications down the road for the family. Okay, so I guess we could very, very briefly, Chris, Mm -hmm. go over the H-1B filing fees because it is what it is. The government keeps increasing it. Their service keeps reducing. They keep ripping us off. They don't approve it, Mm -mm. but their fees miraculously keep increasing. If we did this in private industry, we would be shut down or thrown in jail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sheila, there's a $460 base filing fee, which everyone has to pay. Um, There's a $500, it's called an anti-fraud fee, Um, which should be paid by the employer, not by the employee. Um, There's also a training fee, which by law has to be paid by the employer. Um, That's $1,500 for employers that have more than 25 employees, or $750 for employers that have 25 or fewer employees. Um, There's a special $4,000, it's called a border protection fee, that also must be paid by the employer. If the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of the employees are on H and L1, H and or L1B, and that's total, and that's combining H and L, H and L workers. Um, Now, employers are exempt from some of the above fees when they're filing a subsequent H1B extension for the same employee. They don't have to pay all of these. Um, And, of course, everyone knows, I'm sure, there's an optional $1,225 premium processing fee, um, which can get you a decision faster from USCIS, but it's important to remember it does not supposedly give an advantage <laughs> in, in the H-1B lottery, and it doesn't allow you to work any sooner than October 1st. Correct,
1: correct. So, uh, of course, as we talked about earlier, as I mentioned, we are seeing ridiculous and outrageous RFEs and denials, especially in since 2017 and some of the most common issues that we have encountered especially with it consulting companies with respect to their h1b uh, petitions are the lack of the employer employee relationship also r- referred to as the la- r- lack of right of control the work location because the s- location keeps changing on the matter of semio solutions you need to f- have filed an amendment no longer can use the old lca rule, and third that the, uh, that the documents really need to establish a bona fide specialty occupation, which we'll t- touch upon. So you know what, I'm gonna ask Kenya, if I can, to, to discuss a little bit the employer-employee relationship, because some of these are the older issues about employer, and then we'll get to the really, really super hot topic, which is the whole specialty occupation and the level one wages, etc. So with that, Kenya, can I have you
2: uh, start? Right. Um, we have discussed this in our p- previous teleconferences as well. USCIS effectively altered the adjudicating standards with the January 8, 2010 memo, which required that employers show the right to control its H-1B employees, indicating that merely hiring, firing, paying, and providing benefits will not by in itself be enough to establish an employee-employee relationship. Employers now need to demonstrate that the employer has the right to control the manner and means by which the work is done by the employee, and also that this control will continue for the entire H-1B duration requested in the petition. So USCIS must be able to determine through the evidence that is provided by the employer if the employer has sufficient level of control over the employee, especially when the employee is placed at a third-party location. Some of the factors that they consider are whether the petitioner has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, the extent of employer's discretion over when and how long the employee will work, and who provides the instrumentalities and tools needed to perform the job which is do you provide them with a laptop do you provide them your own software examples and some so people
1: say weekly call, conference calls training being in touch with them right. monitoring them determining the work all that stuff and the usci actually has repeatedly stated that payment of wages alone is in their
2: opinion the least important factor um So, we have some suggestions for avoiding an employee-employee relationship RFE, which will be discussed in more detail a little later. Okay. What about
1: work location? So, the whole issue of the work location, as we're seeing, they continue, the USCIS continues to request that all the actual work sites need to be identified at the time of filing the H-1B petition if the employee is going to be working at more than one location for example, like the company's headquarters or home office, and then the client's work location, etc. and then the employer is required to provide an itinerary with the petition and obtain an LCA which each of those locations right up front at the start of the petition. And if you don't know it, then you have that whole matter of Simeo solutions filing multiple amendments and dealing with that whole issue.
0: Chris? Yeah, it's important to remember that an LCA has to be certified for each work location at the time of filing the H-1B petition. Um, you cannot submit information regarding a changed location with a new LCA in response to a request for evidence because uh, you're, you're be submitting a, an LCA that was certified after the H-1B petition was filed, which is, which is, is not, not accepted. Um, another important issue that we're seeing all the time, uh, it's become more frequent, uh, it was frequent, it's got actually gotten more frequent, um, is USCIS site visits. Um, USCS has been conducting lots of work site visits. Um, they go to the location where the H-1B employee is supposed to be working, see if he or she is actually there, and if he or she is getting paid the appropriate wage and doing what he or she is supposed to be doing there. Um, and when USCS conducts these site visits, they go to the location that's indicated on the, on the H-1B petition. Um, and as Sheila, as you just discussed, the matter of Simeo Solutions case, um, when someone, when an employee moves, you have to file an H-1B petition before they move. Um, this applies to any work location that is outside commuting distance of the original LCA, the original H-1B petition.
1: And sometimes we've found that they've actually issued stupid RFEs where even though the person may be within the same metropolitan statistical area, Because sometimes it's in two different states. If you're Mm -hmm. on the border of state A and B, it's a different state, but it's in the same commuting MSA. They end up getting confused or issuing actually RFEs or even denials because, again, they're poorly trained and they have a very, uh, they're basically being told how to come up with good excuses or actually not even good, flimsy excuses to Mm -hmm. deny cases. Okay, so now we have the whole issue of the specialty occupation. Um, As most of you know, I don't have to. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. All of you know that last year, uh, fiscal year 2018, employers have received an unprecedented number of RFEs in regard to the issue of specialty occupation. The clever ruse that they came up with for either issuing RFEs or denials, which was shocking to most employers and employees, was because of this very tricky, clever memo that they conveniently dated March 31st of 2017. Uh, released that night when they knew that it takes seven days for an LCA to get certified uh, and uh, it would be too late for an employer to go back and get a new LCA, that they conveniently release a memo stating that positions which are classified as computer programmers generally would not be considered to be a specialty occupation because those positions do not necessarily require a bachelor's degree. According to the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And then, of course, the memo conveniently ends with, well, this is, of course, not a change in policy or in the law or in the statute or regulations, but it's just, you know, we're just spelling out what the law always has been. Well, we know that's cockamamie because, in fact, in practice and in law for the last so many decades, all of us have been getting approvals. So if it's the exact same, then why did you change your interpretation and where is your legal basis for it, Um, which is another whole issue. So talking about specialty occupation, if I can have you get into it, maybe, Kenya, you can start a little bit about how can an employer try to address these issues and really establish the job is not a level one job obviously we can't have every job in the world level one job obviously as an employer you need to be careful but what can an employer do to show that the particular job duties are in fact a specialty occupation and not just a level one wage issue
2: right i mean you know there are a couple i mean there are several uh, factors to consider one is if you are filing for a level one, you know, make sure that it is indeed a entry-level position, that you're hiring somebody who is, is, you know, with a bachelor's degree and, you know, maybe has a couple of years experience, so, you know, he's, you know, will typically be hired at an entry-level position. But even if it's an entry-level position, it still needs to require, it has to be complex enough to require an education in that field. So, you know, you need at least a bachelor's level. So it's a tight rope that you're walking because you don't want to make it so complex that you would say that this needs more experience to perform, but it's complex enough to require a bachelor's degree in a specific field and a couple of years of experience. So that goes without saying that you can't take an experienced person with a master's and eight years of experience and say this is a level one. Um, And Most likely
1: that's not going to work because even though that might be the minimum requirement, it certainly raises a red flag. And by the way, even at the multi-law firm, we actually have been able to obtain approvals showing level one wage where the job or the title or the job duties actually make it mandatory. And in fact, there was a recently released case as well where the Administrative Appeals Office, which is known to rubber stamp the USCIS decisions, actually said, no, it is a level one wage and it can be a job with a level one wage that still needs to be approved by the USCIS, basically twisting the USCIS's arms with that. So that's always nice to know that the government can't just make up a new requirement that has to that has no basis in law or in fact. Um, so we have this whole issue, but also in order to help H1B employers, uh, we are certainly in terms of the whole issue of you know end clients end letters getting the letters because a big part of the problem for consulting companies is obtaining the end client letters. Um, but if necessary, your lawyer and certainly I know we at the multi law firm will be willing to speak, for example, with mid vendors and end clients uh, or explain the importance uh, of obtaining those letters in order to show the work location, the duration, what should be mentioned as the job duties so that it matches with the title of specialty occupation and shows how complex it is requiring a bachelor's or higher degree. Uh, and in terms of duration, Chris, how do you show that?
0: Well, in, ter- in it's important not just to demonstrate that the job is in a specialty occupation. You also have to show that there's actually work available for the period that you're requesting. Um, a lot of H-1Bs have filed for, for consulting or contract positions. Uh, so for that type of position, you'd want to show contracts, uh, purchase orders, statements of work that indicate the duration you're requesting. Um, this can be letters from in clients, probably generally the best document, um, letters from vendors also important, uh, and these should verify the duration of the project and the need for this employee services on that project. Um, you can also show project plans, uh, project timelines, or other internal documents um, which identify a timeline for the project and the ongoing need for the employee, and, and documents like that are important uh, for in-house projects. I mean, this doesn't just apply to consulting positions. Even if you're, you're employing this person at your premises, this is not a consulting position, you still have to show there's sufficient work available for this person uh, for the whole period you're, you're requesting. If you're requesting three years, you have to show realistically that there's three years' worth of work. Um, now, employer may be able to utilize other forms of evidence uh, to demonstrate this. Um, however, if you're providing alternative documents, um, for example, if you can't get an in-client letter, you can't get a contract, um, can't get all the mid-vendor letters for the for the contractual chain. Um, you're very likely very likely to get a request for evidence for one thing. Um, but if you're able to get an approval after that, it's very likely you're going to get an approval for a shorter duration that you request than you've requested. A um, lot of times you'll see a, a one-year approval when you've requested three. Not at all unusual, and and that's a common problem because a lot of in clients will not commit to to a three-year project. Um, and you have to remember, documents you're submitting all have to be properly dated and signed by the relevant parties. Also, everyone needs to make sure that everything is, is legitimate. Um, lots of HUMB employers are employers get into trouble when USCIS identifies documents that they've submitted as not being authentic, not being signed by the person who they're supposed to be signed by. Uh, it, and it's it's very dangerous, and this is the sort oh, of thing. Oh, they le-
1: just sign it because they feel like they can't get it from the end client, but they have the letterhead or whatever, and they try to exactly use it. Or uh, somebody, yeah, some, well, often they'll call the USCIS or the anti-fraud unit of the consulate mm-hmm. will actually confirm and verify that this person may not never have signed this, or the person who signed it actually wasn't authorized to represent exactly. the company and right. sign. So all kinds of, and I I realize how difficult it is for consulting companies because they have a time deadline, they're nervous, the employees are nervous. And so it's always tempting to take a shortcut to obtain the approval, but the risk is so steep and it can be a permanent debarment for the employer, um, you know, based on fraud or the employee for fraud to ever come into the U.S. again or work that it's just not worth looking at shortcuts. And I I completely understand how frustrating it can be as a person running a business to have roadblock upon roadblock, um, you know, impediments being placed by the government. I'm very cognizant of the time. I know we always try to have all these conferences calls between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're getting very close to our 40-minute schedule. So what I'm going to do is a couple things. One is I'm, just because of the time as well, going to very briefly mention that if the employee that's working for you happens to be on an H-4 EAD card issued because the spouse has an I-140 approval, and therefore the H-4 dependent spouse now was able to obtain that wonderful benefit of the Employment Authorization Document, or EAD, and because there have been rumors, thanks to the Trump administration, that all of this could poof, fly away, in a v- literally vanish under our very eyes. Uh, uh, some people are actually taking the, the position that it's not a bad idea to attempt to file an H-1B cap subject case for that H-4EAD employee that may be on your payroll, uh, so that there's a chance that if the h 4 ead vanishes that this person could continue working with a CAP subject H-1B. Um, however, there's another school of thought, which I still think is a good idea to look at that as an option, but since there's less than one in two or one in three of getting selected for the lottery, that's a concern. But I'm also concerned that the government may use the the excuse or the reason to spe- specifically cancel the H4EADs for those who are not using it. And so to some extent, I have a concern because I think there's direct serious harm for somebody that might have bought a house or bought a car or bought vehicles, m- relied on it to a larger extent, and whether... The government will take that into account. So, again, we don't know, none of us has a crystal ball to know what the government's going to do. And all we know is that in the Trump administration, since he's been in office for about a year now, there have been more and more and more roadblocks than in any other prior administration to harass employers and employees who are foreign nationals or employers or companies hiring H-1B employees. Uh, One last thing I want to end with to check with both Kenya and uh, Chris or Chris and Kenya, whether either one of them has any sort of quick parting advice, what would you do if you were an H-1B employer and you were dealing with this, how would you deal, for example, with either the employer-employee issue, the worksite issue, or the level one issue? Chris, Kenya?
0: I, I think the main thing that I would say, just because I see this every day and in, in talking to employers and, and seeing requests for evidence, employers need to remember, not everyone is level one. I think there was a practice a lot of employers fell into through the years, that all H-1Bs were filed as level one, um, it, and that's that's not the way it's supposed to work. I realize it was, this was except this was uh, ignored by the government for years. It's not ignored anymore. Uh, you cannot have someone who's been working for you for ten years, who's who's got a job title of senior software engineer two, classified as a level one wage. Um, and I've seen that. I've seen I've seen RFEs where the job description for a person classified as a level one wage explicitly listed that they're supervising other employees. And that's, and that's, that's a that's, huge red flag. That's, a guaran- that's essentially a guaranteed denial right there. You really have to appropriately classify these positions. So
1: somebody in-house just copying pasting, doing it while they're doing 400 other things might not be penny wise and pound foolish, exactly. especially with the government filing fees, which Chris had referred to earlier being so steep and so ridiculously high. You really don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish, save thousand dollars with a good lawyer um, and and then in the end lose two or three or four thousand or five thousand dollars and a project worth maybe tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars because of that Kenya
2: right. um, and also sometimes you know employers would say yeah but I pay them much higher wage so and they don't understand is that you know there's the actual wage and the prevailing wage So if you put, you know, whatever the minimum prevailing wage is, but you're paying them at a higher wage most of the time, and then, you know, you're paying them at a lower wage, you know, when they're in between contracts, USCIS is going to hold you to that higher wage. So because that is the actual wage. Because, you know, according to the H-1B regulations, you either pay them the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is higher. Correct. So you need to, remember, uh, you know, remember that. Um, and on, uh, then uh, on the... Uh, Description of the job duties uh, USCIS routinely is coming down on saying these are generic job duties. These are not specific, so we can't say whether it's a specialty occupation. So it's important to describe your job duties um, in relation to the project and and make it more specific, you know, to the project. So USCIS does not make a claim that these are generic job duties.
1: Okay. And I know we've focused, both Chris and Kenya have focused very heavily on the level one and the just specialty occupation because that's what we've seen extensive RFEs in the past year. But I know that the government, if they feel that we've addressed those, now they'll come back. Don't forget, you still have to establish the employer-employee relationship, as a, especially as a consulting company. So don't forget to have your annual or, uh, you know, uh, evaluations on a regular basis if it's twice a year with your employees proof of that. Show in your employee handbook that you have made the person sign that these are the rules applicable, for example. You should uh, you know show them proof if you're paying medical, dental, or other insurance. You should show that you're providing, as we talked about earlier, the smartphones or the computer or the tablets for them to keep in touch with you and report to you. Then an employment contract, whatever you have uh, between you and the employee showing that you have the right to control this person and actually establish, and the end client letter should clearly state that the H-1 employer and the employee uh, has the right to control over the employee, not the end client who has no uh, issue or does not provide any of those uh, you know, evaluations or any anything like that so that we can get back to those issues. Um, so in the interest of time, I really... Uh, need to wrap up for today but I hope we've given you a quick overview of the issues that we all have to deal with that we are in this year fiscal year 2019 for cases with a starting date of October 1st 2018 on behalf of myself Sheila Murthy Chris Drynan, Kenya Sanders, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today. We hope that we will have an opportunity to help you and your company process your H 1B petitions, especially in this really, really tough climate, because our approval rating is, in fact, way higher than what I understand generally is out there in the marketplace. But again, it feels like the cat and the mouse where the government constantly changes their tricks of how to give, put roadblocks. But again, working with the best law firm, working with highly experienced legal team will greatly, we believe, hope and believe will improve your chances of getting your H-1B approvals and then the green card and ensure the success of your business for the long term. We thank you so much and have a wonderful day.